Welcome to Wisdom Radio, an ad-free premium podcast fully supported by our listeners. This is Andy Height. Welcome. Michael Cremo, also known as the Forbidden Archaeologist, is hailed as a groundbreaking research pioneer and international authority on archaeological anomalies. His landmark bestseller, Forbidden Archaeology, first published in 1993, already has been translated into 26 languages, and it challenges the very foundation of Darwinian evolution. Michael continues to dig up discoveries in the fossil record and shake up accepted paradigms, exploring famous archaeological sites around the world, journeying to sacred places, and of course appearing on on, on national television and radio and podcasts and speaking at various scientific conferences and other conferences around the world. So happy to have Michael with us today to talk about man's origins. I am so excited to talk to you today. I have been a big fan of your work for many years, and I've heard you um, listen to various lectures that you've given. And um, so I wanted to start with some history in terms of where you sort of branched off, how you originally um, got into this area, um, which sort of goes counter to what the mainstream is with regard to human origins. Walk us through that just a little bit uh, about how you realized that maybe the, 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 uh, the mainstream might not be the main thing. Well, that, that's really an interesting question. And you know, I, I had some time to think about it you know, during the uh, lockdown for the virus here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it it keeps coming back to I think the the way that I was raised. Yeah, you know, my father was an intelligence officer in the United States Air Force. So, you know, that that meant a couple of things for me as I was growing up. One thing it meant was we were traveling around a lot, our family, in the United States and and different parts of the world. And I I also got from my background, not only did I get exposed to a lot of different worldviews and cultures as I was growing up, I also... Uh, learned that there is such a thing as hidden knowledge. You know, you know as I said, you know, my father was in one of the intelligence services, and I grew up among people who were in that profession. And you know, I, I could understand at a very early age, yeah, there, there are things about this world that many people just aren't aware of because they don't have access to the information, to the facts. So, Mm -hmm. um, among the different worldviews that I got exposed to was the spiritual culture of ancient India. And eventually I became the disciple of a guru from, from India. And as part of my spiritual development, I began to study the Puranas, which are the 
historical and cosmological writings of ancient India. They have to do with the origin of life and the origin of the universe and its purpose and things of that nature. And one thing I noticed was that these ancient texts were speaking about human populations that existed millions and millions of years ago. You know, it was something completely different from anything I'd ever learned from my teachers in high school or university. And, you know, I had to wonder, well, is there any truth to that? Mm-hmm. Or is it just some mythology that was made up, you know, by these ancient people? So that's what got me looking into the history of archaeology, because say if you look at the current textbooks of archaeology, there you'll only see the discoveries that fit the now dominant theory that human beings like us appeared maybe two or three hundred thousand years ago. And before that, you know, they would say there's no evidence that humans like us existed on this planet or anywhere else in the universe. So that's kind of like the mainstream view. But I thought, well, let me look beyond the textbooks. That's what I love about your work, how you go right to the primary reports that the sci- that science is, that they you know the archaeologists and various people in the scientific field are are writing and and you're actually digging through those you speak many languages don't you <laughs> so you're doing this all over the world yeah um yeah i decided to look look as you were saying, at the primary scientific literature, you know, the the original reports by archaeologists, anthropologists, geologists, other scientists who are digging into the earth and see what they found. And when I did that, as you kind of mentioned, you know, I, I was looking not just at reports in English, but yeah, you know, as I was growing up and going to school and yeah, you know, I lived in Germany. I learned German. I learned Russian. I have a reading knowledge of all these languages. I really can't claim to be a, a fluent speaker of them all, but I have a reading knowledge mm-hmm. of German, French, Italian, Russian, Spanish, a lot of different languages. And that that right these, there is pretty incredible. <laughs> it's a yeah. it's a testament to your brain power, and um, you know that you're you're looking at these things from um, from an intellectual perspective, which I think is really interesting and important. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, when I looked into these reports, I began to find many reports from scientists who had found human bones, human artifacts, human footprints, millions of years old, far older than their current theories allow. So I collected all of these reports and put them in a a book uh, that I co-authored with Richard Thompson. It's called uh, Forbidden 
archaeology. Right. And of course, and, we'll, we'll have a link to all of your books. That is one of your books. And um, that would you say that's probably, you know, that's sort of your, your landmark bestseller that you've, um, ha- have there been an, a, additional versions of that over the years? Yeah, that was, uh, you know, the first book that I published in this area. And, you know, it was 900 pages long. You know, it was called, you know, some people called it forbidding archaeology because <laughs> it was kind of, you, know, you, you don't, I mean, it just looks so forbidding. You don't right. even want to pick it up. <laughs> you know, 900 pages. So we kind of brought it out in a, a shorter edition as well called The Hidden History of the Human Race about 300 pages long. It's all the same cases, but just in a more succinct presentation, you know, shorter presentation of it. But it's really, what, what really surprised me is that more people would buy the 900-page book than the 300-page book. Yeah, I, I kind of found that amazing. I thought, okay, yeah, maybe 900 pages is too much for some people. And, but it seems like the people that were interested in this, they thought they'd be missing something. Yeah. You know, if they got the abridged version. Now, I'm curious if this has informed a whole new generation of archaeologists that are perhaps... Um, a little bit more open-minded and not as um, tied to the worldviews that sort of have limited um, uh, other scientists in the, in the past. Because you, you talk about that a little bit, about the sort of the trick that the mind plays on us when we're, uh, we, we have a particular worldview, and if the evidence doesn't quite kind of fit into that worldview then it, in many t- times it's it's rejected. And um, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I, I think there is a process of knowledge filtration that does go on in, in the scientific world. And, you know, it's, it's something that philosophers of science and historians of science have understood for quite a while. You know, there was... Um, <clears throat> Uh, one uh, pretty prominent uh, philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn, who wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he came up with this concept of a paradigm. You know, he said science, in a, you know, a particular scientific discipline will operate according to a paradigm. In, in other words, a set of a fixed set of ideas and methods and conclusions that they could do their research on 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 the basis of this paradigm. And mm-hmm. the way it would work would be if you know you encounter some evidence if it fits into the paradigm, then that's fine. It goes in the textbooks. But scientists would inc- uncover evidence that didn't really fit the paradigm, you know, the dominant consensus among the mainstream of scientists. 
And these things are called, these things that don't fit, they're called anomalies. And you know, they just kind of get set aside. We'll work on it later. They get forgotten. They get dismissed on some very flimsy grounds or something like that. Yeah, or sometimes but, like boxed up and put in the back room. Um, Mary Leakey, in her 1979 uh, uh, case of finding the modern human footprints that I, I think you, you mentioned dated back something like 4 million years. Now, the risk is for these scientists that it really can affect their reputation if they find an anomaly and, and publish it. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that, that can happen. And, you know, for example, there's uh, an American geologist I know personally, Virginia Steen McIntyre, now, she was involved in dating an archaeological site in Mexico. It's called Huayatlaco, and it's in central Mexico near the town of Puebla. And you know, there in the 1970s, a team of Mexican and American archaeologists, they uncovered some stone tools, and they wanted to know how old these things were. So they brought this team of geologists from you know, the United States, including Virginia Steen McIntyre. And these geologists, they used four different scientific methods to date the age of these artifacts. And you know, they found they were 300,000 years old. And you know, that is older it's i mean most scientists now think there's no evidence for a human presence in north america any earlier than about 25,000 years ago and no evidence for any type of human being that could make artifacts of these type there were very advanced kinds of stone tools and weapons and you know, they just hadn't evolved yet, according to their theory. So they just refused to publish the age for the site. And you know, Virginia Steen McIntyre and her colleagues were just very surprised. They just thought, well, we're scientists, we're geologists, we're just doing our job here. And, you know, we can't help it if the age that we're getting doesn't fit your theories. So they decided to independently publish the age for the site. But when they did that, they got an extreme negative backlash from their colleagues in the scientific world. And you know, Virginia Steen McIntyre lost a teaching position that she held at uh, a university and now, she'd been a rising star in her profession. She'd invented some wow. new method of geological dating, and she was getting all kinds of grants and research money and invitations to speak at conferences. But when she published this, this date that just contradicted all the mainstream theories, you know, her career was basically finished. Wow. So yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. There, there can be a price. 
And well, that that's why uh, it's so important to have someone like you, um, because you, you know, you're, oh, you know, you stir things up a little bit and you get people thinking you um, uh, aren't going to lose your grant to uh, dig at a, a certain site if you, um, you know, you've gone way back uh, to what, like the 1800s in terms of um, some of the primary reports that you've looked at. Um, so I, I, you know, I, um, I really respect that there's such a, a role for um, uh, somebody like yourself who is uh, turning over all these stones and really taking a second look and not as worried about their um, reputation or fitting into a norm. Well, yeah, you're, you're right about that. So actually I have a lot of audiences for my work. Uh, one of the audiences, of course, is the general public because they're interested in these things. And But I also speak to the scientific world as well. I present papers based on my work at meetings of the World Archaeological Congress, the European Association of Archaeologists, and uh, other scientific institutions and universities around the world. So, so I, I try to keep uh, in touch with all these different kinds of audiences of people who are interested in, in these topics. Because I think we're, we're, undergoing in the world today uh, a whole renegotiation of our understanding of the universe and life and consciousness and how all these things relate to each other. And I think there are a lot of parties to that renegotiation of our whole picture of reality. So I try to stay in touch with all the different elements or different groups of people who have an interest in these topics. Well, when you really track it back that far, um, then it's, then you start to ask questions. Um, I have a whole bunch of questions that things like, um, do you think that humans were somehow, um, seated on this planet? Uh, maybe, because you know okay so let's you know really open our minds to the possibility that we're not the only intelligent species in the universe and that perhaps um we at a certain point um you know star trek is one of my was one of my favorite shows you know that somehow we were we were put here um as a uh i don't know is that anything that comes up for you well it you know it does you know after people, many people read my book, Forbidden Archaeology, they would ask questions. Okay, you've got all this evidence that contradicts the current theories of human origins. You've got 
all this evidence showing that humans like us were existing millions and millions and millions of hundreds of millions of years ago. And it completely contradicts the current theories and explanations of human origins. So they would ask, okay, so what's your idea? Just more or less what you're asking. And, and I, I would say, okay, that, that's, a, that's a very good question. But before we even ask the question, where did human beings come from? We should first of all ask the question, what is a human being? Yeah, we should know what it is we're trying to explain. Well, that's a good point, because we are sort of just not this body. Yeah. I mean, that that is the most important point. And of course, this takes you way beyond the stones and bones that I talk about in Forbidden Archaeology. Now, most scientists today are going to say we're just machines made of matter. We're machines made of molecules, and that's all there is to it. And consciousness and mind and all that stuff, that's just a temporary byproduct of bioelectrical activity in the brain. And at the time of death, when the chemical activity in the brain stops, no more consciousness, no more mind, nothing like that. I don't accept that. There's this whole unseen world that when you become more sensitive, you really begin to tap into. And I think more and more people are becoming familiar with that and more comfortable uh, in that space. Um, But go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that's an excellent point. Uh, Yeah, I mean, consciousness is primary. You know, if I weren't conscious and you weren't conscious and your listeners weren't conscious, we wouldn't be having this experience. And I think consciousness has its own independent existence apart from matter. So we're, we're... in essence, we're not just machines made of molecules. We're composed of three things, really, here in this world. Ordinary matter, that's part of what we are. Then I think there's a subtle mental body that has some very unusual powers, like remote viewing and telekinesis, mind over matter, and things like that. And then beyond that, there's a conscious self. There's matter, mind, and consciousness, or spirit, if you like that word. And if we're going to explain human origins, then we have to explain where did all these things come from and how did they come together in the human form or other forms of life that we see around us. So I would say, yeah, what we really are ultimately is beings of pure consciousness. And none of us are from, as beings of pure consciousness, are from the world of matter. So that means we've been seated here, we've been placed here, we've been put here for some reason. I would say it's like a school where we're meant to learn some lessons. Well, and it is, a you know, Earth is a violent 
uh, planet. Um, and so let's say humans have been on the planet for a long time. You know, it's possible that whoever architected that uh, opportunity um, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe somewhere along the way we just had to get really tough to survive and we kind of just forgot uh, some of these finer abilities that, um, you, you know, it's much easier to meditate when you're in a nice, safe place and you don't have to worry about a tiger eating you or, you know. <laughs> that, is, that is correct. You're absolutely right about that. And, you know, when I've thought about, yeah, you know, I'm a practitioner of bhakti yoga. It's a system of yoga that came out of India, the yoga of devotion. And, you know, when I, when I meditate on these things and contemplate them, I can see that, that what I call the level of pure consciousness, which is where we really belong, is it has a, a ruling principle, and that ruling principle is loving, harmonious cooperation among all conscious entities. And then somebody might ask, well, the, well why aren't we there? And I, I think the answer to that is that some conscious entities, because they have ultimately free will, love can't be forced. Love has to be given willingly. That means the conscious self has the ability to turn in the opposite direction and become selfish, dominating, controlling, exploiting. And for that category of conscious self, there has to be some other reality, some other virtual kind of world where it can act on that basis. And the conscious selves in that world, the world of matter, have a choice to make. They can either become more and more deeply involved in the competition, the anger, the violence, the selfishness, the greed, everything else, and 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 following out those tendencies create environmental disasters, social disasters, wars cheating, exploitation, and all of that. Or they could try to understand, I'm a being of pure consciousness. You're a being of pure consciousness. We're all beings of pure consciousness. Let's don't divide ourselves up into different competing groups. Right. Let's satisfy our needs in the most simple, natural, efficient, and fair way possible. and let's develop our loving, harmonious cooperation so that we can be where we really belong. And, yeah, and, and as yeah. human beings and uh, with our fellow creatures on the planet, which um, also embody that, 
that loving yeah, consciousness I, and, um, you know, uh, being good stewards of, of, of other life forms on the planet. Um, but so I have a question with, um, all these sacred sites around the world that many, uh, I just had Freddie Silva on last week and, you know, oh. um, so there are similarities that are, that are found. Uh, also there's que- questions about how old these sites are, um, who really built them, what their purpose is, does that connect to somehow almost like a time capsule? Just imagine that if we were worried that we would forget who we are, you know, to have these time capsules all over the planet to sort of act in some way to help raise consciousness and and wake us up. Do, do you think there's any connection there? I I do definitely. I mean, when I do travel, that's one of the main things I do. I visit sacred sites in India and other parts of the world, and to me, they're like portals to other dimensions. You know, it's kind of like, say, like if you have. I mean, just to use an example, like. You know, you've got American embassies in all different countries around the world. And when you say you're an American citizen and you're traveling, say, in Russia, for example, when you go to the American embassy, you're not in Russia anymore. You're in a little piece of the United States you know, that happens to be in Russia. And, you know, you're you're kind of in, in your world there, not in the world that's immediately surrounding the, the embassy. So I think these sacred places are kind of like that. They are little pieces, you could say, of the ultimate place we're all meant to be that are here in this foreign land that we're uh, inhabiting at the moment. But when we go to those, a sacred place like that, then we are in our natural position and we can get the feeling of, of that. I mean, I know sometimes I've been traveling in different countries and you've got all kinds of strange foods and things and to go to the American embassy, go to the snack bar there and get some, something from home, you could say. I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Good feeling. Mm -hmm. So I think these sacred places are something like that. That's an interesting uh, way to look at it. I mean, people do seem to have these transformative experiences of different uh, levels, um, depending on where, you know, on their own personal starting point or, um, but I think sometimes those experiences do surprise people and they come away thinking, what was that about? Um, maybe a combination of, um, of the symbols, um, the, 
I don't know if there are any sound frequencies. The vibration. The vibration. The vibrations of the place. I mean, I remember once I, you know, in 1969, you know, I happened to be in Israel uh, over the winter. You know, I'm, I was born a Roman Catholic, and now I'm kind of a practicing yogi. But, uh, you know, I, I went to Bethlehem. And, you know, at Christmas, on Christmas Eve. And it was kind of interesting because there had just been some kind of war and there were no tourists there. Kind of like now, probably, you know, people aren't traveling. And, you know, so so I, I was there with some other young people. I was, you know, about 21 years old at the time. And, you know, we we kind of went to Bethlehem and we went to the church of the nativity and you kind of go down some stairs below ground to a place where, where they say Christ appeared. You know, so it's considered for that faith, a very sacred place. And normally there would have been hundreds and thousands of people there, but because, like I said, there had just been some war and, you know, it was deserted and there were just these six Belgian nuns down there, you know, singing hymns in Latin, you know, and I was just, I was really feeling the energy of the place, you know, like, wow, this is, you know, uh, a sacred place to really feel. It's kind of like being in a spiritual jacuzzi or something. <laughs> you know, it's like getting... So I, I, I yeah. sometimes get those kind of sensations when I'm in places like that. that... And, and, and Freddie was saying uh, last week, too, that um, sometimes you realize that these places are you know, they're very sacred and people have experiences there but he was saying you know none of us really need to go because it's all within um, in other words we have that ability to tap into that energy anytime we want um, through uh, various practices that we either self-discover or learn from other people um, so it, it's just interesting, but I, I definitely think it amplifies it, you know, when you are someplace and you connect in that way. So that that's a great story. Thank you. Yeah, no, but you're you're absolutely right, and, and or Freddie is also that it is within you and through meditation, contemplation, and other techniques, you can access that 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 reality so definitely uh, agree with that now you have um so human origins uh you have some things coming up even though people aren't traveling very much right now um that i want to make sure we mentioned um let's see here is it called earth origins 2020 right and you had been that was going to be a physical event well, it was. It was going to be in Sedona, Arizona, which some people say is one of those portals. You know, it's kind of 
but uh, yeah, Eric von Daniken was supposed to be there. I was supposed to be there. Hugh Newman, a uh, bunch of researchers in the alternative archaeology and spirituality field were, were going to be there. It was a yeah, nice event, but you know because of the recent developments, it, it had the the physical event had to be uh, canceled. But it's still going to be available in a digital form towards the end of uh end of may so uh we're going to be doing it in another form so mm-hmm. uh, i guess that's something to people can people um google that uh yeah the uh, earth origins 2020 uh that's something that people can participate now yeah. or they can go to go to my go to my website. Yeah, let's talk about your website, uh, some of your books, and I would love that. So go ahead and um, and uh, yeah, on, on my website, if they go to the schedule link, you know, they would see upcoming events, interviews, things like that. And they, you know, so it's a good kind of a good place to start instead of hunting all over the web. Which is the best the uh, website to go to? mcremo.com m-c-r-e-m-o.com and and my books are available on that site as well they're available a lot of other places too but everything's kind of there and kind of the things that we've just been talking about are are things that I talk about in my book Human Devolution a, a Vedic alternative to Darwin's theory that's where I kind of get more into the spiritual aspect of things. Uh, and forbidden archaeology, that's kind of about the archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity. So uh, so that that website's a good place to start. Okay, I, okay great. That's great. Um, perfect. Um, mcremo.com m-c-r-e-m-o.com and are you working on uh, what are you working on now well what I'm working on now is uh, a follow up book to forbidden archaeology because in the years since that book was published other cases have come to my attention and I've been gathering them together researching them and yeah, you know, sometimes it takes a quite a bit of time to be to really thoroughly investigate these things. So, you know, I'm putting those things together. I've got the first draft of the book done. So, kind of one of the things that I want to do during this time when you know I'm not able to travel around as much as I did before, you know, in one place, I I I think I can really focus on pulling that together, you know, going over this first draft of the book and just putting it all together and trying to have it out within the next year or so. So that's what I'm focused on now. Mm-hmm. And I'm also involved in some other uh, projects related to cosmology you know there's uh, a project in india it's called the temple of the vedic planetarium which will 
be talking about. You know, it'll be a temple, but also a science museum and a planetarium explaining uh, the Vedic cosmology of a consciousness-based universe with souls, conscious selves moving through different bodies over the course of cyclical time and entities existing on all different levels of reality and things like that. So I'm part of a group that's designing exhibits for the museum and film presentations for the planetarium that will be there. So that's a pretty amazing project. Wow. That must be, it must be fun to work with people who uh, share curiosity um, and, um, and an openness to that. Well, I, I think it's, we're all part of a, a movement, you could say, you know, I mean, you're doing your part, you know, there are people doing research, people communicating, providing channels of communication and, you know, it's, uh, to me, it's all very exciting. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's really It's all exciting. fascinating. You, know, you go on this journey and there's so many other people making their own contributions to this effort. It's really amazing. It's a little bit like one of those, when I go on vacation with my sister, one of the first things we do is we go get a really big puzzle. and We, we just dump it out on the table. And, you know, when we come back from the beach or we're getting dinner ready, we just work on it. And that's a little bit what, you know, everybody is bringing their corner of the puzzle, you know, there, you know, and, and it, and then it starts to take shape and then you begin to see, oh, is that, that looks like that might be this or it might be that. And, um, I, I think that's sort of what's happening now is, um, everybody is, uh, I mean, obviously not one person probably has it all in their, in their mind. Maybe some people do, but, um, yeah. So, <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. And um, I um, will check back in with you uh, when you have your next um, uh, book out and we can maybe have another conversation. And um, it's just, it's, it's been a real, a real pleasure to talk to you today. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Good to be with you and all your listeners. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This is your host, Andy Height. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting Wisdom Radio through your subscription so we can stay ad-free the way we like it. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Wisdom Radio. Guest suggestions are always welcome at wisdomradio.org. Until next time, remember to follow your brightest path.